Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's very good to be with you. Um, this is actually the first time David and I have, have met, and so I decided to wear a very striking shirt uh, so that our rendezvous, rendezvous was a success. So I have to begin with an apology for dressing, well, like a deck chair, really. Um, uh, so for the next 30 minutes or so, uh, I want to think about what life in a post-Christian culture will look like. I think we all share the sense that something really profound has happened uh, in our society. The ground has moved beneath our feet because those with cultural power and political power are, have chosen to rebuild society on ideas that are profoundly anti-Christian. It feels like we now live under a new regime. On the 1st of July 1997, the United Kingdom handed control of Hong Kong over to the Chinese. Some of you may remember this. The handover ceremony was a moment of real drama. The 28th and last governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, stood in torrential rain uh, as the Union flag was lowered. The last post was played as he received the folded flag. Earlier, Mr. Patton had drafted his last telegram to London in a message to be transmitted at midnight. I have relinquished the administration of this government. God save the Queen. A small boat took the last British administration out of the harbour to Her Majesty's Yacht Britannia, which then sailed off into the darkness. The end of empire. At its height, the British Empire controlled nearly a third of the planet. It was said that the sun never set on it. But in that symbolic moment in 1997, a chapter of world history was closed forever. Each Sunday, many of you meet in beautiful and ancient churches that have stood since the 17th or 18th century. The graveyards outside are full of generations of people who lived and died in a Christian land. But today it feels as if that chapter of history has closed. It feels as if the sun uh, has set on a story that first began when Patrick landed on this island 16 centuries ago. A new set of leaders has assumed control of Western culture and their uh, regime feels alien to us. And the key question we're going to address in this session is how should we respond? At a practical level, how should we live at home or in the workplace? and in the public square. How politically active should we be? I can't believe I'm going to try and address that question to a Northern Irish audience. Uh, I'm taking one of these doors, whether or not there's a fire alarm. Um, at a deeper level, how do we make sense of what God is doing uh, at this time in the world? How can we maintain hope when it looks like Christianity has lost the match? I don't know about you, but those sorts of questions generate a whole set of competing emotions in my mind. Some Christians' immediate instinct is to uh, leap into the political arena and fight back. Others descend into despondency. They choose to withdraw from society. They close the church doors, perhaps sing about victory, and they just ignore the cultural landscape outside. Then there's the stress of holding on to unpopular beliefs. It's been too much for some people within our church communities. So the thing called evangelicalism is fracturing between those who continue to live under the authority of Scripture and those who call for a more pragmatic relationship with it. And these fault lines aren't caused by academic debate over different ideas. They are deeply personal. Some years ago, I was asked to speak in a church in a different country on the subject of human sexuality and gender. And in my talk, I had defended the orthodox Christian position on those matters. And afterwards, a church elder and his wife approached me and asked to speak with me. They had a son who was about to get married to somebody of the same gender. 
And the elder said this to me. He said, orthodoxy doesn't work when it gets personal. Now, I mentioned that incident to illustrate the point that the stresses of living under this new regime can be really personal. It can divide families and churches and divide work colleagues. Sharp disputes can arise between Christians about how we should respond. What we really need here, I suggest, is a framework which allows us to see what's going on. We need a sort of map that helps us locate ourselves and gives us some sense of direction. Now, back in 2016, I gave a talk here at New Horizon. Uh, It wasn't called The Exile. That would have been a much more sensible title. I actually called it Raised in Jerusalem, Heading for Babylon. And behind that eccentric title was the idea that the framework we're looking for here, the map that will guide us, is that period of biblical history known as the exile. Now, the books of the Bible that deal mostly with the exile are uh, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. They record how God's people were forced by the uh, Babylonians to leave Jerusalem and make that thousand-mile journey to the city of Babylon. Now, think what the exile would have been like for a moment. Imagine you were one of those 10,000 people taken from your home in Israel. Everything would be different. The food, the language, the layout of the streets. Instead of the comforting sight of the temple in Jerusalem, there would be idols in every street corner, these great winged sphinxes that guarded the entrances of the thousand heathen pagans, uh, pagan temples in Babylon. God's people no longer felt at home. They were strangers living in a strange land. And their home back in Judah, well, that had been destroyed. Jerusalem, the city of God, had been razed to the ground. Even the temple, the place where the God of the universe had placed his name, that had been dismantled. The beautiful golden vessels of the temple had been placed in the Museum of Babylon for visitors to gape at. Now think about that. The whole of Israel's spiritual destiny reduced to a cultural artifact in a museum. And we don't need to speculate about how the exiles felt. They tell us that directly in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept as we remembered Zion. Now maybe you can already discern why these ancient books speak so powerfully into our own lives. We were raised in Jerusalem, but we're heading for life in Babylon. By that I mean we were raised in a culture founded on Christian values. There were thriving churches on every street corner. But that culture is being torn down at bewildering speed. The young adults in this room will raise their children in a pagan culture. We were raised in Jerusalem, but we're heading for life in Babylon. Well, you might be thinking to yourself, that's a very vivid metaphor for our situation, but it actually isn't of much practical help. So we need to dig slightly deeper into Scripture before we make that dismissive judgment. So let me read you some verses from Jeremiah chapter 29. The context here is that the prophet Jeremiah has written a letter to the exiles living in Jerusalem. He is telling them how they should live, telling them what they should do while under this new regime. And his letter begins like this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. 
I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now, one of Jeremiah's main reasons for writing this letter was to counter some popular teaching that so-called prophets were giving to the exiles. These false prophets were the optimists of the day. Don't worry, they told the people. This will be over in a jiffy. Well, I presume that's what the message says, but you get the idea. God is just giving us a short, sharp shock. Before you know it, we'll be back in Jerusalem and life will return to normal. That's nonsense, says Jeremiah. At the end of his letter, he says to the exiles, you're going to be in this culture for 70 years. That's three generations. So not just you, but your children and your grandchildren will have to live in Babylon. There will be no quick fix. God is playing the long game here. I think a three-generation span is a reasonable time frame to assume for our own situation. Now, of course, the Lord may return to judge the world at any time he chooses. But the return of Christ is not our only hope here. The time which God's people had to endure in the land of idols was limited. They did return, but it didn't happen instantaneously. That first generation lived and died in Babylon. So at the level of practical living, Jeremiah's advice is important. God's people were not to be paralyzed by fear or despair. They were to get on with the business of building godly homes. But did you notice that his advice is even more astonishing than that? He tells the exiles to work for the good of the city, to work hard for Babylon's welfare. In other words, they were to be good citizens who made a contribution to community life. And we ignore Jeremiah's advice here at our peril. As we move into an increasingly anti-Christian culture, it is vital that Christians are seen to be good citizens. Our voice should not simply be heard in protest rallies. We should be recognized as people who contribute to human flourishing, who care for the welfare of Belfast and Northern Ireland. And I don't need to tell you that our great role model here is, of course, the man called Daniel. We know from Daniel chapter 9 of his book, he studied the book of Jeremiah diligently. It had a profound effect on him. And if anyone lived for the good of the city, it was Daniel. He used all his managerial genius to build the world's first great empire. He established excellent relationships with those in political power. And his life of quiet integrity was known to all. Now, Daniel's long life provides, I think, a really uh, practical insight into what living in this sort of a culture will look like for us and our children. For many years, uh, both at the start and the end of his career, Daniel lived in peace and security. He was well regarded by the ruling elite. But there were spikes of persecution. Think of the fiery furnace of chapter 3 and the den of lions later on. Those spikes of outright persecution were horrible, but they were short-lived. In fact, the main difficulty which Daniel experienced was a long period of marginalization. He spent a lot of years kicking his heels on the fringes, shut out of political office. And that marginalization was a direct result of his refusal to compromise his integrity. So let's put that story together to paint a likely picture, a possible picture, of the next 70 years. If the Lord doesn't return, there may be long periods of relative peace and goodwill. There may also be short periods of outright persecution. But the main problem facing the children of your children will probably be marginalization. Christians won't be trusted enough to allow them into senior positions in corporate or government life. Certain professions may become hostile work environments for Christians. And can I say in all gentleness that Northern Irish Christians may really struggle with that deprivation. Why? 
because we have a tendency, brothers and sisters, to idolise education. We dream of our children becoming respected medics or lawyers or senior professionals. But imagine a world where middle-class Christians were more likely to be electricians or hospital support staff. Both those occupations are entirely honourable and necessary, of course. My aim here is to flush out a form of idolatry that lurks within Northern Irish Christianity. Before long, parents may have to advise their children to either compromise their beliefs or say goodbye to a big professional career. So at the level of practical living, we can see how pertinent the teaching of Jeremiah and Daniel are to our own situation. But if we really want to understand what's going on, we need to think more deeply about how cultures change. I should have put that slide up about five minutes ago. But it's not really worth the effort, so we'll just move on. So I'm going to suggest a, a biblical framework that we can use to better understand what's going on. So, so far I've talked about the world uh, in the right-hand column, the world of practical living. Now, that's the visible world of politics and the culture wars going on over competing rights. But upstream of that world, moving, le- moving left, we encounter the realm of ideas. This is the arena in which truth battles with lies. And upstream of that, in the left-hand column, we encounter spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle between heaven and those principalities and powers who oppose heaven's rules. So from right to left, there's politics, ideas, spiritual warfare. And the point of the diagram is that the flow from left to right controls history. Okay? I'm going to suggest that this picture shows how the Bible views politics. It sees it as a surface thing. The really strategic stuff is what is going on upstream. And that might explain why direct political action by Christians is nearly always ineffective. Just think of the sheer energy and talent and money that has been poured into the political lobbying in America. First the moral majority, now the Christian right. Nearly all of it was well-intentioned and well-executed, but it has been ineffective. Culture in the U.S. has continued to move at enormous speed away from its Christian roots. Think for a moment about the political struggles going on in our own society. Most of them are driven by ideologies that are simply false. Abortion or transgender rights are good examples. Behind the political discussions, we find much deeper questions about human freedom, human nature, how we decide what makes a human being valuable. And this is the battle of the middle column, the battle for truth in the realm of ideas. As Paul puts it, our job here is to demolish arguments and pull down intellectual strongholds. Let's now think about the exile in that light. Babylon is described in scripture as a land of idols. It was full of false ideas about the way reality works. And the God of the Bible, as I said earlier, had been reduced to an exhibition in Babylon's main museum. Judaism was just one set of cultural artifacts among others. Truth had been relativized. So put yourself in the shoes, or perhaps the sandals, I should say, of an ordinary exile. He would remember life as a child playing in the shadows of the temple. He had been taught universal truth about God's plan to redeem humanity. But now Jerusalem was in ashes. The temple had been dismantled. And he lives in this hugely successful culture that rejected all that he had been taught as a child. So you might have wondered this. Is it real? Or was Nebuchadnezzar right that Judaism was just a cultural thing? This was the big battle 
going on throughout the exile, the battle between truth and lies, and what is real. And here's the interesting thing. Before the exile, when it came to idolatry, Israel was a junkie. It just couldn't get enough of it. But after the exile, there is no problem with idolatry anymore. Why? Because their bitter experience showed them, convinced them about what was real and what was false. It took the exile to get idolatry out of the hearts of God's people. Now, the upcoming generation in this room, at some point in your lives, if the Lord doesn't return, are going to ask the same question as the exiles. As they watch their Christian heritage being torn down, as they live in a hugely successful and confident society that's rejected Christianity, they will ask of their faith, is it real or was it just cultural? And in God's strange purposes, it's going to be that exilic experience which will cleanse their hearts of the idolatries that have captured the hearts of my generation of Christians. So we thought about the realm of practical living. Then we thought about the battle in the realm of ideas between truth and lies. But we can't stop there. Because in Christian thought, where do those false ideologies come from? What, who cooks them up? What causes false ideas like postmodernism to arise in the first place? Well, says the Bible, at the deepest level, we find principalities and powers in this universe who are opposed to God's rule. They want to overthrow all of God's creatorial boundaries. So they create these intellectual idols, using them to draw millions of people away from the truth about how human beings can best flourish. And the man called Daniel saw this better than anyone else. The last part of his book, if you've ever read it, or if you've ever tried to preach through it, you will know is full of strange imagery that depicts the great spiritual battles going on in the heavenly realms. But Daniel knew that there was a God in heaven. And when that old pagan king Nebuchadnezzar gets converted, he acknowledges in chapter 4 that heaven rules. Now, we can use this model to help explain how uh, we can live in a world of idols. I, I don't quite know why that slide is there. So let's just move on. Let's take a really good example here of gay marriage. If we were simple political activists, we could say that David Cameron smuggled gay marriage into law without a referendum or even a manifesto commitment, and now in Northern Ireland, gay marriage will almost certainly become legal because of the suspension of devolved government. But that explanation is a purely political one, and we all know that it isn't true. It's simplistic. The battle for biblical marriage had been lost long before the issue entered the political arena. The underlying ideologies had been carefully nurtured and propagated in universities and in the media for decades before David Cameron came along. So you can begin to see the sheer breadth of the problem that we are called to address. There is much more to this than the waving of order papers in Westminster. There's more than the visible world of practical living. At its deepest level, there is spiritual warfare going on between heaven and the dark forces which are in rebellion against God. And that struggle manifests itself in the battle of the realm of ideas, the, truth between, the battle between truth and lies. Now, given that context I've described, think now about Paul's instruction to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. You realize he's not just indulging in pious naivety when he says, petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving should be made for kings and all those in authority. He's talking about something really, really deep here. The sociologist Peter Berger has described this culture as a world without windows. By that he means we live in a closed little system of competing power structures. 
but prayer opens the windows. And in the Bible's view of reality, the seen and the unseen are both real. We can count on both in the full reality of God's created order. Think of Elisha asking God that his, his, that his servant might see the chariots of fire. They were every bit as real as the visible things in the world. Let me just pause there and ask you a question. Do you believe that? Can you say with Nebuchadnezzar that heaven rules? I'm amazed at the number of depressed, disconsolate Christians in Northern Ireland today. They seem to live in two different worlds. At the weekly prayer meeting, they pray for the sick of the church and for their commended missionaries. The world outside is hardly ever mentioned. But then they sit with their friends and bemoan the state of the world they live in. They feel as if their country has been taken from them by a group of vandals. But for some reason, the political blinkers go on. The conversation never gets beyond the sorts of fights that occur on the Stephen Nolan show. If only these dear Christians could take a step back and see the vast cosmic struggle that they are engaged in. If only they knew the power of their spiritual arsenal. They have divine power to demolish strongholds, the ability to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. At its root, the weekly church prayer meeting is based on the idea that heaven rules, that God is in control of history. And if we could glimpse the cosmic breadth of that battle, we would have an antidote to despair. Let's move to the middle column. Here is the battle for truth. God wants societies to come to a knowledge of truth the truth about his design plan for humanity, the basic boundaries and guidelines he has set in place to ensure human flourishing. At the very beginning of God's story, the man called Adam was given the task of developing an ordered and fruitful creation, a civilization. He was called to be God's viceroy, to exercise rule responsibility responsibly so that his descendants and indeed the entire planet could be governed. But his rebellion, as we know, caused the whole scheme to spiral into chaos. Instead of a fruitful garden, there was the desolate desert. A planet that should have been characterized by stability and harmony and fruitfulness became a war-ravaged shell. How far we have come from Eden. Consider the hundreds of thousands of infants who are going to be damaged irrevocably in the years ahead by transgender ideologies. Infants will have their basic personhood undermined by their school teachers. Thousands of precious human lives sacrificed on the altar of a false ideology. And God wants infants and young adults like that to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants them to see the beauty and order of his creatorial boundaries, the, the distinctions between male and female complemented in the institution called marriage. He wants them to experience the order and the fruitfulness which a life lived according to his design plan can bring. And even in this fallen world, where gender dysphoria is a tragic reality, he wants those little ones to know hope and security and acceptance, to know that they can live radiant lives, full of fruitfulness, without having to mutilate their own bodies. He wants them to see their life in the context of creation and the fall and restoration, because that's the only true way to see life. So when we preach the gospel, brothers and sisters... It is vital in these days that we describe the beauty and the sanity of the Christian way of living. Far too much of our gospel preaching reduces to an infantile, repetitive description of a theological game of snakes and ladders. The winners go to heaven and the losers go to hell. Now that sort of talk makes absolutely no sense to the modern mind. Now I'm not denying the eternal realities that flow from the gospel, of course not. 
But the gospel is about saving people in the widest sense of the term. So the beauty of biblical morality, described in a winsome way, is now an essential part of the gospel message to this culture. But by far, the most important change we need to make in our gospel presentations is to give people the right conception of God. I hope I don't cause offense here. But far too many preachers have described God to their audiences as a cold, arctic light, someone who regards them with disfavor. He's often described as little more than a list of moral properties, an infinitely great being who's pure wrath and pure love and pure wisdom. Well, here's the thing. No one ever got to know a list of moral properties. No one ever. In a post-Christian culture, it is the first person of the Godhead who is most hated. God is regarded as a hated cosmic authority, a threat to personal autonomy. So we need to introduce non-Christians to the father that Jesus loved. It is essential that people hear of God as he is, warm, benevolent, a father. Muslims have 99 names for God, not one of them is father. We need to describe God as the Bible does, as a great fountainhead of life and love. And only then can alienated and lonely people lost in the chronic anxiety of a performance-driven life. Only then can they find the courage to walk away from the false god called autonomy and return like the prodigal to their father in heaven. I have talked for too long. I always talk for too long. So before we have a few questions, uh, let me just summarize my thesis. In order to live in a post-Christian world, we need to accept, firstly, there will be no quick fixes. This could be a three-generation experience. And our first job is to build Christian homes where the Lord Jesus is honored. But we're also instructed to build up our society to look for the good of the city. We must be prepared, perhaps, for periods of marginalization. Now, there may be occasions when political activism is required, but Scripture's consistent witness is that politics is on the surface of life. The really deep battles take place in the realm of ideas and in the spiritual warfare between heaven and those who oppose heaven's rule. So our main jobs are threefold. Build good counterculture, stand for truth, and wrestle in prayer. And if we can raise up a generation that lives like that, then God's people will once again prove that only truth stands. Those great idols that dominate our cultural landscape will topple and rot. And God's grand story will carry on to its inevitable conclusion. Nebuchadnezzar tried to reduce the God of the Bible to a collection of artifacts in a museum. Wow. Get on a plane to Berlin. Visit its museum. And you'll see the great Ishkar Gate, every brick stamped with Nebuchadnezzar's name. It's Babylon that ended up in a museum. The God who rules in heaven will reign for all eternity. And so we can have a quiet confidence as we face an uncertain future. Thank you very much. Jim, thank you for that. Uh, hopefully that's whetted your appetite. Hopefully you've got lots of stuff whirling around inside your mind. Uh, sometimes it takes a while to formulate questions, to think them through. Anyone have anything to start us off with that would be uh, interesting for Jim to answer and grapple with? Okay, 
My, my microphone won't stretch over, but if you shout out, then I'll repeat your question so everyone can hear it. Okay, it's a question about, in the workplace, uh, being compelled to undergo diversity training, and what is a Christian response to going through that training or approach to that? Thanks. Um, I suppose the, the, the complicated issues are in the detail behind that. I mean, at one level... Um, undergoing diversity training is a bit like a, a, a school person, um, a, a student, learning about atheistic evolution. It is a theory. It can, exam questions can be answered on it as a theory. It doesn't need to mean that you affirm it as being true. So in a similar way, if the training is done correctly uh, within law, then um, it's no bad thing to understand people's different worldviews. I think it's a thoroughly good thing, actually, for Christians to understand queer theory and to understand how the LGBT community uh, understands identity because that explains why they get you know, so angry with us. So I think it's good to understand people's different approaches to worldviews. But where it goes wrong, of course, is when people in corporate life are asked to affirm and celebrate particular positions. And the underlying problem here is that the, the liberal, a liberal, by the way, is, is in my mind just a bigot with low self-awareness. Uh, <clears throat> I, only, I make this a joke. I've just realized I'm being recorded. Uh, uh, that was a joke. Um, uh, <laughs> um, I think I maybe need to go through diversity training. Um, but um, the, 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 the point is, the good liberal folk really genuinely believe themselves to be neutral on these things. They believe that they're creating what's called the myth of the neutral public square. So the best analogy is, um, they see themselves as the referee in a, in a league of f- football teams and you've got the Christian team and the Islamic team and the Hindu team and they're all kicking lumps out of each other and they're like the referee. But the reality is they're just another team in the league. There is no referee. Very often, uh, liberal, progressive liberals don't realise they have a set of very specific beliefs that they're imposing on other people. Uh, so they're imposing their idea of identity and their understanding of freedom and their understanding of meaning and all those sorts of things are being imposed on people. But they don't see that, they just think they're right. That's where the low self-awareness comes from. So the problem with these things is it's actually very difficult to explain that to people because it's just been assimilated and absorbed through osmosis in their own heads. So anyway, to cut to the chase, if it's just a matter of learning people's different worldviews and understanding where people come from, that is a good thing. I would actually support that. But if you're being asked to affirm or to celebrate a set of beliefs that you disagree with, then I think you may have to protest. Thank you, Jim. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, Thanks. Um, Would you agree that traditionally the biggest threats to the church haven't come from the outside? They've come from within. My present experience of Christianity is that a lot of the fundamental great truths, such as of the cross, are now being questioned, not just in the pew, but at leadership level. An example I would give is two years ago, a very, very prominent leader in this country. I had a discussion with him because of something he said, 
regarding 2 Corinthians 5.21, which you you'd know is God, he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And he said uh, that's mistranslated. The Greek doesn't say that. And I said, uh, on the contrary, the Greek does say that. So here we have somebody, a leader of leaders, questioning the very text of Scripture. I'd be interested in your comments. Um, <clears throat> well, the point you make about the general point, first of all, before um, maybe we deal with the more specific issue with things like penal substitution. Um, you're, you're, it's interesting that you say that most of the, and historically most of the problems come from within. I think it's probably they come from everywhere. But if you take the picture of the exile um, uh, for a moment, um, why did the exile happen? It was a judgment on Israel's idolatry. Israel had created a political religious idol. I'm not trying to be funny when I say this. They had created an idol uh, based on past um, victories which God had given them. They felt they were God's special people, and they had a, a, a they had a, a, a mentality which you could describe as for God and Jerusalem. They created a cultural, a form of cultural religion, fusing politics and religion, and that is what God had to smash, and He did smash it. So you are right that even in these circumstances where we see threat from without, ultimately it's a judgment that God is going to use to cleanse problems within. So on the specific. Um, of the doctrine of the cross. I think it's always been the case, unfortunately, that people uh, in Christendom have, have attacked that. I mean, the devil has very, very few new ideas, so they just regenerate the same uh, heresies every so often. And the underlying issue is between those who are um, afraid to stand for truth and afraid of unpopularity and those who want to be pragmatic. Um, so that has always been the case. Thank you, Jim. Any other questions? Questions maybe about practical outworking. How do we take that? How do we use that? How do we shape that with groups that we're working with? Jim, okay. Andrew at the back, yep. Okay, so that's a question about your, your specific response to the challenge you received from the elder in the church that you mentioned in the seminar, Jim? Yes, I understand. I understand the point. Um, so just to remind you, that the comedy says orthodoxy doesn't work when it gets personal. Um, well, all orthodoxy is personal, and it's probably the point I would make. You know, unless you have assimilated truth into yourself and become convinced of it, uh, then it's just a set of propositions floating out in space. So, um, yeah, I, I think on that issue, I think and, um, the mistake that has, has been made is that we only have the conversation about these really difficult issues once something has happened. And in my experience in talking to, across quite a number of churches on these issues, the real anger that I have experienced is not with people, for example, who are gay themselves. It's nearly always with their mums and dads. Okay? And so the answer is that we need to prepare people before things happen. 
We need to build truth into people before a crisis occurs. Okay? So that people know where to stand. That is always how God works. If I just get personal and take a step away from, from, from these sorts of issues for a moment, as some of you who know me know I'm a widower. My wife died from leukemia when she was 36. How did God get me through that? Well, mostly by building stuff into me beforehand. Okay? So I had a built first-person subjective knowledge of God's character into my heart so that I was able to handle that crisis. And I think the same thing applies in all these difficult cultural issues we're talking about. The church needs to equip people so that it knows how to deal with a crisis if it does come further down the line. So that, that's probably the point I would make. In general, of course, um, uh, the, the, when somebody challenges the Christian perspective on these things and think it's just bigoted and think it's just meaningless and stupid, you know, love is love, yes? Um, uh, I always think the best way is to ask questions rather than making assertions. To get people to explore the implications of their own worldview, just to draw it out. So uh, I'm not going to go into the detail of that, but I think that's the best way to go. Ask questions to get people to think through the implications of their own worldview. While I have the microphone, could I just say one wee thing? I, at the, the 2016, during the Q&A, I steeled myself for hard intellectual questions. Uh, and the one question which floored me came from a young mother. And she asked... How will I prepare my children for this change? And I had no answer. And so I spent quite a long time thinking about this. Uh, fortunately, there are resources now coming out. Um, so I'm going to recommend a book by William Wallace, uh, no, um, Jim Wallace and Sean McDowell, um, which deals with how we prepare the upcoming generation uh, uh, for, for, for life in this sort of a culture. Um, at a much lower level, there are Bible stories and, and children's books now coming out which help infants understand the philosophical concepts that lie behind these culture issues, which explain what freedom is and how the Bible views freedom and those sorts of things. Um, so I think you want to go searching for resources, and your churches should go searching for resources um, which will um, help parents and equip parents and help them to build uh, a Christian home uh, and explain the Christian worldview in simple terms to infants. Yes, sir. Okay, so quite a complex question there uh, about issues that we are encountering as a society, as a global society, issues like uh, climate change, issues like the economic uh, realities of all these systems that are thrown into disrepute. Uh, issues maybe that weren't quite in, in the same narrative as we have in the biblical analogy, Jim, that you presented. So Israel was able to return to Jerusalem, and uh, there were a lot of the issues solved in that journey back. But for us as a, a culture, as a society, how can we uh, respond to some of those big issues that maybe are not so straightforwardly soluble as the example that was given. Is that the essence of your question? Okay, thank you. Thanks, David. That's what you technically we call a hospital pass. Um, <laughs> so, um, first, I'm, I'm not sure if um, it's simply the case that, that we now face unfixable problems, whereas Israel faced fixable problems. 
Um, I'll come back to global, sort of climate change in a moment, but certainly in terms of the economics, uh, you know, Israel faced much harsher economic realities uh, than probably we will ever experience. Um, they experienced the utter collapse of a society uh, in a way uh, that we probably will never do. Um, so, uh, uh, although, you know, even, even what we, th- we may think are modern issues, such as multiculturalism, that's what Daniel chapter 3 is all about. Nebuchadnezzar desperately doing this massive social engineering project to try and get people from different cultures to align against a particular thing. So an awful lot of the ideas that we think are modern are actually seeds in the scriptures. Um, so uh, I, the one example that you gave which breaks my theory, I suppose, would be global warming. Um, uh, or, or I should say climate change, sorry. Um, and I want to divide that into two. Um, I want to talk, there's the distinction, but I want to make a distinction between the scientific uh, potential for ir- irrevocable damage to the planet. I want to distinguish that between what I'm going to call eco-anxiety, where you've got a whole generation of young people who are so anxious about the future and who are all going vegan and not promising not to have children and all those sorts of things. Now, behind that, I think actually lies pantheism. I think we're, we're descending into the swamp of pantheism again. Um, and it's a, it's a result of not being able to trust our Father in heaven. If the German philosopher Heidegger said we are thrown into the world, thrown into the universe, it, we, if we really think that we're the only conscious beings in the universe, then of course it is utterly terrifying because we live in a universe that is implacably hostile to human life. And if the planet uh, is getting to the point where there is irreversible damage done to it, that is terrifying if you can't appeal to your Father in Heaven and realize that there is someone beyond physical reality. But that has always been the case, I guess. The ancients, all, just all they could believe in was nature gods. Um, but Christianity holds out this great hope that behind the impersonal forces of nature, there is a personal God. And so when it comes to eco-anxiety and all that sort of stuff, I think that is mitigated by good theology. Now, is the planet doomed? Well, uh, I suppose if you read Second Peter, then yes, uh, it is. There is a sense in which uh, this planet will come to an end. This whole world is is temporary. But yet again, good theology means you don't be afraid of that. Right? I, I I don't think I've answered your question, but I've worn you down by just talking. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Wonderful. Yes. Okay, so a question from a church leadership perspective, seeking the welfare of the city. How does that fit into the structure of our to-do list in leading church in terms of mission, in terms of discipleship, in terms of all the other priorities? Where does that then take shape or how does that take shape? Okay. Um, as a church leader, one of the key things you have to do is not give the impression that the really serious stuff is done by full-time Christian workers and everything else is just paying for that. Okay, uh, I have no time for that. Neither had Luther, um, so it must be right. Um, uh, so the, the big thing you need to do is encourage uh, your church members to be the best at whatever their profession is. So... You know when Paul talks about in Philippians about whatever is good and whatever is pleasing and lovely, he's not just talking about religious things. He's talking about a fantastic bridge or a most elegant IT algorithm or a brilliant piece of academic research 
or the latest theory coming out of physics, right? Um, we should be intellectually curious. We should be the best engineers. Christians should be the best scientists. They should be the best artists, the best musicians. And so that's what we need to do. We need to encourage people to um, ex- enjoy and explore their creatorial mandate, right? And not give this notion that everything reduces to what's done on a pulpit. I've offended every church leader in the room. Okay, so that's getting very specific about uh, the reality of invitations with friends who are uh, same-sex relationship, getting married. Is it something that we should participate in, Jim? Um, There's probably no single answer to this. Personally, again, the the key thing I would say is, again, preparation is everything. So uh, whenever I worked, the days when I had a real job and I worked in in, in the IT industry, um, lots of um, my colleagues were, well, a good number of them were gay. and So I built a strong relationship with them. And they got used to the fact that, in their language, I was a mad Irish fundamentalist, which was wrong at every level. Um, uh, (laughs) But... um, uh, so whenever they invited me to these things, uh, I would say, no, look, Adam, you know, uh, you know what I'm like in these things. But what I maybe did was I bought him a present. And I, bought, I wrote a card saying, we have completely different views on these things, but I do wish you well. And I value your friendship. So it's much more difficult if you're talking about parents of a child. And that is very much on a, a case-by-case basis. But again, I think depending on where they are in the conversation with their son or their daughter. Um, As a general rule, I think it would be hypocritical probably for a Christian to attend uh, a a gay marriage. Um, But I wouldn't judge a close family member who who took that decision. It's one of the things you want to talk about with your elders and and your local church. Um, But the most important principle is... You build a relationship with them first so that you can have those sorts of hard conversations. Okay, so we're, we're wanting specifics and time scale now. So, um, Jim, year zero, year 10, where are we? Only in Northern Ireland would they demand a prophetic timeline. Um, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I wasn't presenting this as a sort of you know, nailed-down eschatology in any way. Um, I mean, I would say... To be on- oh, sorry. Um, okay. I mean, I think we're really only at the start. Uh, I mean, the, I mean, the, because the law is very much on our side, right? At, at the moment, I mean, there's freedom of expression. If you actually look at purely at the law, uh, we have nothing to fear. The problem is you've got these overzealous bureaucrats and and people who implement it in, in say, the NHS. Uh, but at the moment, I think it's still very early days. The political elite hasn't yet completely tipped over. And that's, that's, again, the message of Jeremiah. It's the cultural people, the cultural power go first, and then the politicians, and then the officials. Um, so I think we're pretty close to the start. Okay. Um, how will it end? Well, um, here's the thing. Idols always fall. They always topple. Right? I, probably, I think I told you this story last time, but um, I do like reusing my stories. I, I was speaking to a group of missionaries uh, in Eastern Europe, in Hungary. 
And at the end of it, I thought they would leave me back to the airport, but the cheapskates abandoned me at a, 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 a bus terminal uh, <laughs> 30 miles southwest of Budapest. And it was the oddest place I'd ever been at because it was a sort of a graveyard for all the Soviet-era statues, you know, the noble communist worker and some Stalin and mostly Lenin and things like that. And so I had to wait for a while, so I sat on Lenin's head and I <laughs> reflected at the astonishing pace at which communism fell. Idols always fall, right? because only the truth stands. That is what God is doing. He's showing that only the truth stands. So what will happen? All the things that terrify us now or scare us now, like queer theory and postmodernism, uh, will die. In fact, postmodernism is already dead in the academic world. Okay? It just, it's ghost romps happily through popular culture. But it's already starting to die, because these things always do. And so the important thing is that Christians are around and say, however long it will be, to pick up the pieces at the end. Okay? So I think it's a bit like the parable of the prodigal son at the moment, right? The prodigal son still had loads of money at this stage. Uh, it's only whenever he's looking longingly at pig's will, when people have seen the, the mess that they have made of society, that they will then be in a position to come back and repent. And so one of the things we want to pray is that people will fail fast, that this society will fail fast. Things may get worse before they get better. That's exactly the message of Habakkuk if you want to read through that. Things get worse before they get better. So we want to pray that it will fail fast and that people will come to their senses so that as few infants, for example, are as damaged by transgender ideology as possible. And people will see through it. They'll experience the bitterness of their own choice. Uh, See, if you think of the golden calf, what what did Moses do with the golden calf? He ground it up. He made a suspension in water, and he made the people drink it. In other words, he made them experience the bitter consequences of their own idolatry. And that's what God does. That's what his wrath is in history. And so that's what will happen. People will experience the consequences of their own freedom, their own autonomy, and then eventually, like the prodigal, they will come to their senses. Thank you, Jim. Yes, sir. Okay, so it's a question really about not just being asked to expose yourself to training, but whenever we are part of an organization that is actively promoting and asking us to participate, to celebrate, to validate uh, perspectives. And you're specifically using the example there of pride, of, uh, of all of that uh, whole culture that goes along with that. How should we respond whenever we are being asked to celebrate and validate. Is that the essence? Okay, so you're part of an organization who is uh, promoting and is actually adding their colors literally to the mast of, of those organizations. Okay, and the exa- yeah, the example of the PSNI in, uh, in supporting the Pride March there. I'm not sure there's a good answer to this, brother. Um, uh, well, at a very practical level, I'm going to suggest one thing. I suggest that you practice answers. Right? I know that sounds crazy, but if the first time you ever have to explain your position in a gracious and reasonable way, if the first time you try that is in the live situation, it's almost certainly going to bomb. <laughs> so it's no bad thing to think yourself into a situation and say, now what would I say? in a situation where I have to give a defense about why I will not celebrate a set of beliefs that are counter to my own. And uh, so that's, that's a very practical thing. As far as the, particularly in corporate life, I, 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 um, 
would not have, I absolutely would not have achieved the, the, the position that I achieved, not that it was tremendously very, very much, but anyway, that I would have achieved that position now, uh, as I did when I worked in business. Because business has become much more aggressive in its promotion of uh, progressive, the progressive left um, uh, worldview. So I don't think there's a good answer here. I think it may well be that there's going to have to be a time when you have to accept marginalization and that maybe you don't get promoted. And so you have to protect yourself from becoming bitter because ultimately you have to trust God for your career. And if God's will is that you stay for truth and stand for truth and it means you don't get the two promotions that you think you deserve, well, then you have to live with it or else you think about moving to a different job. But I don't honestly think this is almost like a fever that has hit corporate life at the moment, isn't it? Uh, and it's just a trendy thing. Now, probably in ten year, five years' time, it won't be the trendy thing. So you just maybe have to accept that your career will plateau for a little while. Okay. So that's what happened to Daniel. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Yes. Lady, yes, at the... Okay, so a question really about living your life really for the flourishing of the city, for the good of others, how can that translate into the way that we really pursue our own agenda, maybe for our family or people that we're influencing as well? Yes? In society. Okay. Yes. Um, You're testing my my eschatology and a very clever question, uh, if I say so. Um, Because the Lord Jesus said we are salt and light. I think there are, so the point is, there are limits to what we can achieve in, in this society. I think there is something about this society because of the human heart, which is irretrievably broken. And so, in a sense, we have to make the best of what we can in a broken world. And so, I suppose I'm, what I'm, I'm arguing against is what's sometimes called an over-realized eschatology, that we bring the blessings of the future or the eternal state into this world. I think there are limits to what we can achieve. Um, but we can always uh, do our part to try not just to stand for, for truth, right? not just to say uh, this is what I think is right, but actively to create good things. That? Yeah. Yeah, it's in, in our personal lives. So, so I'll give you a really good example. How did the early church handle infanticide and abortion? They started orphanages. Right? And I think there's something in there that we have to think um, about what is the, the total solution that we can offer in that sense to, to a culture where uh, a young girl is under enormous pressure to go for, for example, to go for an abortion. Um, and it's not enough, I would suggest, simply to stand for truth in that sense. I think if you look at the lesson of the early church, that's why Christians invented orphanages. That's why they did it, because of the huge problem in Roman and Greek culture uh, of infanticide and abortion. So there's an example of good that we do. Build good. The best way to handle bad culture is to build good culture. I think we're done. Thank you so much, Jim. Uh, Can we just show appreciation to Jim for all his contributions?